Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start, if you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Sam Moores. Welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. And on the podcast today, we have Ian Tyrrell. Now, he's a pretty interesting chap. He's been in the industry working on cars for decades. And his sort of skew that he does is crazy Italian cars. So he has built up a massive reputation for working on things like Muras. When I went to visit, there were five mirrors in the shop, something like that. Lots of other avenues about some of the things about working on old cars that are different and Italian things, etc, etc, etc. So lots, lots to dive into around that sort of topic. So I hope you enjoy. Can you tell the audience just like a little bit about sort of who you are and what you do? Okay. Um, I suppose my day job uh, essentially has been um, working on unusual, esoteric and now classic at cars for the last 40 years. That's it, really. <laughs> and we're, we're sitting here at your base of operations. Yeah. Um, with a bunch of some cool cars behind us and, and plenty more out of shot if you're watching. Um, in where, where did this, this all begin? How did you get into working on cars? Is that, did you do anything before that? How has this sort of come about? Well, um, I, I've always been uh, verging on obsessed with cars. I think my uh, parents would have said uh, the first good car, first word I ever said was car, and it went downhill nice. from there. <laughs> Talk about setting your stall up, um, and uh, I got always been interested in sort of esoteric and unusual things. I guess uh, I. Uh, uh, I, I worked my way through the education system up to A-levels and uh, my dad had a packaging business and we, uh, we had the, um, the good fortune to, be, uh, a, uh, to have some sort of interesting cars as the mm. friends have or whatever. And uh, I, um, he bought me an old Mini for my 16th birthday for £50, nice. pounds, which was a day older than me. Uh, 
And we, um, I, I started to sort of tear the car apart and look by by books like the, the tuning the BMC A series ah. by David Vizard, which let me tell you was a, a reference tone for such <laughs> things, um, and managing to get my head around at least ten percent of it. But um, and that, it sort of developed from there, really. Um, our bank manager at the time, this we were going back to an era when bank managers actually were friends, and uh, actually. You know, there was a sort of relationship there. Mm. And he had an old Bentley, 1953 Bentley R-Type, and I ended up rebuilding the engine on that for him. And I, I was sort of 50-50 as to whether to go into um, car design or not, because I, 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 I studied technical drawing. I'm sort, I'm sort of a draftsman mm. to a certain extent. And uh, I uh, wasn't quite sure which way to go. And then I got a phone call out of the blue from the person who ran the local Rolls-Royce and Bentley service centre. Okay. Um, and he said, uh, you know, you've been over here, you visited, I like I like what you do, would you consider being a trainee for us? And that was it. Um, I feel like that's the sort of the reverse of how most of these things come about. Someone's calling you up and saying, hey, will you come, will you come and work with us? Had you been doing quite a lot of things sort of, Meanwhile, during this time, then, uh, not particularly. But w w as a family, we'd bought a uh, a Rolls Royce Silver Cloud Two, which um, are are um, not at the time it was worth about the price of a new Granada, something like that. Mm. And it, this is a big step for my mum and dad. But we did it, and um, we had to find some way to have it looked after. So we, we, we'd been to this guy two or three times to have work done on the car, and I just developed a bit of a rapport with him, really. Um, and that was that was it. I got the phone call, and I used to. It was forty five miles away from our home, and uh, I had an Austin Allegro fifteen hundred. Would you believe? And I did the ninety mile round trip in that car six days a week for two years, and the car never let me down. Amazing. Ask you, going. I got I got the amazingly reliable BMC <laughs> British Leyland car. <laughs> <laughs> So, and what sort of things were you picking up? What sort of, when you are working somewhere like that at that point in time, are you, you know, are you sort of getting your hand in lots of different types of work on cars and things like that? Yeah, we did. Uh, we did Rolls Royce and Bentleys Deluxe. You know, ninety five percent of the work was um, was that. So I, I was working on Silver Clouds, um, uh, the the um, <clears throat> the Mark Six, even pre war cars. Uh, Silver Shadows and the Silver Spirit was um, much to my, makes me sound very old, uh, but the Silver Spirit was just coming out around that time. Um, but we got, I got to work on other cars as well, BMW 7 Series, uh, Jaguar XJSs we used to do quite a few of. So I was beginning to build up a, a, um, an interest in all sorts of cars. And he, uh, um, in fairness to him, he said, you know, maybe one day as a sideline I can open an Italian car section and you can start working on nice Italian cars, which is what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, things took a different turn because um, when I was 21, I actually left and uh, set up on my own in Wallasey, my hometown, doing esoteric cars. Um, and I, I actually, much to uh, their chagrin, I actually took their service manager with me, who was twice my age, and offered him a job, and he said yes. So he was now doing the 90-mile round trip from... Nice, nice. I like how you've reversed that. 
and and so yeah, so you're working. What sort of pushed you to start your own business? Well, I found um, the 19 mile round trip was beginning to lose its appeal. I can imagine. Um, and I'd built up a fair knowledge because I, I spent a lot of money on buying books as well in my misspent youth. And um, so I was sort of boning up on workshop manuals and all that good stuff. Um, and I, I felt, uh, I just felt there was a need. There was nobody in my area, in Wallasey, um, who was really particularly specialising in unusual, in working on mm. unusual cars. So I guess I saw a gap in the market and we did actually get quite busy quite quickly, dare I say it. That's great. How did, how did you market this? Uh, just through word of mouth. That was all. Yeah. I, I did, uh, with the odd exception, there was a guy locally who um, had a photography business and he had a Ferrari Dino 246, which was quite obviously very rusty and a bit clapped out, but he did actually yeah. use it as his everyday car. Nice. Uh, it seems crazy now, but... Um, and I walked into his office, bold as brass, and said, uh, if I can convince you I know what I'm talking about, will you let me service your Dino? <laughs> and he said yes, actually. And I left him a card. I'd had some business cards printed up. Nice. Um, let me tell you. And... Um, I, I left him with a business card and he rang me two weeks later and he said, well, he said, my misfortune is your fortune. Uh, my engine has dropped a valve. Would you like to fix it? And the whole, um, that developed into a sort of two-year restoration and um, the whole car got, got restored as a result of that. Was, that was my first major restoration project for a customer. Was that quite a daunting thing to do? <clears throat> Very much so. Because I, I mean, when you're looking at a car like that, had you really worked on, had you worked on one before? Well, when I was 19, um, I did manage to, I bought a Fiat 130 Coupe. Uh, that was my third car. We, we'd graduated from the Mini to the Ford Fiesta van, and then a Fiat 130 Coupe, which was tremendously exotic at the time, mm. really, for me as a 19-year-old. Um, <clears throat> very difficult to get insurance on a 3.2 litre car at the age of 19. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, so that sort of set me off on that trajectory, really. Um, so the Dino was a, fortunately, a natural progression on from that, in a way. And, we, and did you do a lot of the work? <clears throat> yes. And so whatever, everything, like I guess, like metal work, blah, 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 blah. No, that's what I have never done body work. Uh, I've okay. seen lots of it done. I've subcontracted a lot of it to be done, but I have never, never done it because um, I'm quite happy to stick with the the mechanical, the oily bits, but mm. the metalwork and paintwork, I have never picked up a spray gun in my life and I have no intention of starting that. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I keep, I keep quote, I'm going through a phase at the moment of quoting uh, Clint Eastwood, but he says in one of the Dirty Harry films, I think it's Magnum Force actually, to be specific, he says, man's got to know his limitations. <laughs> <laughs> and that's mine. So, right. yeah. And, and <clears throat> I guess you're picking up, working on these different cars and you've got all of these, you've started to build a collection of sort of books and things around the time. Have you still got a lot of the books? Yeah. They're out of shop, but they're all over there in the bookcase. Oh, okay. <clears throat> and are they, are they quite useful now? Very much so. Very much so. Because I, I guess there's this concept going around, you can tell me whether it's true or not, that, you know, as cars are getting older 
and the people that worked on them in the time are less and less and less of those. Is it? It's getting harder. Is it getting harder to work on older cars, or actually, is it getting easier because of the internet and things like that? Um, well, I think the internet doesn't really cut it with classic cars. They're such a discipline of their own. Um, you can't type in how to own a classic car on Google. And, and, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, you get your 10 you just bullet get the points. Don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. Uh-uh. <laughs> Computer says no. Um, but uh, I know I, that there's, I mean, you've got to know what engine oils to use in them. We've, we've had cars in recently, um, even from, uh, dare I say this, from recognised mark specialists, and they, for instance, put oil in the engine, which is totally inappropriate. It's too thin for that era of engine. Okay. So um, I think, uh, I mean, the classic car market seems to be, it isn't waning in any way. I think it's worth between six and seven billion pounds to the UK economy. Um, and I don't see it, I don't see it contracting in any way. Um, and uh, I, I think... I think people are. To, you put it very. You put it very, um, very nicely. I'll be slightly more direct. The people who did work on these cars are sort of dying off. Really, yeah. um, I'm a spring chicken by comparison. <laughs> the age of sixty. Hopefully, I've got a few good years in me yet. But um, no, it's it's becoming increasingly apparent that we are um, that, that that there are less and less people who actually know their way around these cars. Yeah, and I imagine for your sort of. German stuff, let's say a Porsche, I believe you can get a lot of stuff from Porsche and they're quite good at still making parts and, and things. Uh, yes, I would tend to agree. Uh, in fact, one of my, but um, one of my customers, I'm, I'm trying not to be too specific here, um, is a German gentleman and he actually advises the Porsche old time department at okay. Stuttgart. Um, as to what should be on what particular cars and the fine details, etc., and um, you know that they're not quite as as infallible as they used oh, okay. to be. And I don't. Want, I'm, I'm being very careful how I yeah, put yeah, this, yeah. but um, it, it's uh, it, it is a generational thing, I guess. It's a generational thing. Simple as that, you know. Yeah, the because I I knew that. If, if you're restoring a car, you've, stuff you've got to get right. But I'd, I'd never really been around a car recently or with someone that really, really sort of knew specifically a certain model, a certain mark until quite recently. And someone was walking around a, a 356. And to me, this car, this car had been restored in the last couple of years and it looked lovely. And I was like, oh, this looks great. And he walked around and he was like, this is the wrong colour, like this bit's been painted, this should be bare metal, blah, 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 all these sorts of things. And I was just like, okay, I, I, I believe you. I'm sure this is correct. But I, I would never spot any of these things. And that in itself is quite difficult because you're like, I think most people want stuff done the sort of period correct way-ish. Um, but then how do you know if the people you're working with know. <laughs> oh, well, this is, I mean, it's, yeah, you're right. Uh, I mean, <clears throat> I, I, because I'm an aesthete, I suppose you could call it, because I'm into, because I studied technical drawing and art, um, I do tend to, like, <laughs> I do tend, I can relate to what your, your, 
guy said when he was looking around the car yeah. because I'm I'm unfortunately exactly the same. And I don't mean that in a malicious way, trying to catch people out. It's just a fact. Um, I, I remember I went to the Windsor Concours a few years ago and there was a Ferrari 250 GTO uh, on um, on display there and it had modern plastic wiper blades on the windscreen. And I thought to myself, either this is somebody, either one, it's a non-original car and they're purporting it to be an yeah. original GTO, which is unlikely, um, or number two, somebody's done it as, as a joke, <laughs> <laughs> rather like putting a, an exploding rat in a drain yeah. pipe or something, <laughs> or, or number three, that no... They just don't know any better. Yeah. Um, they're charged with working on a car that's worth 60, 70 million pounds. Yeah. And they don't know that it shouldn't have plas modern plastic wiper blades on it, for example. Is there a, a fourth option, in which case the owner is fed up with old wiper blades that don't work properly and has somehow found a modern plastic one that does work? Uh, well, that doesn't cut it for me. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you why. First of all... How many 250 GTO owners actually drive their car, or more specifically drive them in the rain? Probably not. Probably not that many. No. Um, and secondly, what was my other reason? Ooh. Um, wouldn't they change them for the Concorde to bring it back to yeah. authentic original condition? You would, wouldn't you? Um, so... Sorry, not trying to shoot you down in no, flames. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's a sort of innate thing in, in me when someone says something, I have to think of the another option. Exactly. I always, whatever it is, it's, it's almost a fault. I've got to think of yeah. another option just in case. Well, yeah, absolutely. There's never a straightforward answer to anything, no. really, is there? The um, slight divergence, but since you mentioned 250 GTOs, um, there was that one at Revival that exploded a little bit. Um, which has since it's come to my attention that it's it's a it's a replica rather than a, an original. Um, do you have any thoughts on replicas racing and versus originals racing or any of those above topics at events? Because that was reported as original. Yeah, I mean it's the um, this is the. The rarefied air of upper echelons in <laughs> motorsport. Yeah. Um, and who who knows what goes on, actually. Um, I mean, I, I could probably make my business to find out if I really wanted to, but part of me actually doesn't want to. Yeah. Because there's a, you know, it's great to see those old cars racing. I say old cars in inverted commas. Yeah. Racing. Um, I suspect increasingly the owners are thinking, hang on a minute, I can get a... A, a tool room copy replica built for £350,000 using the identity of some uh, previously knackered old yeah. Ferrari from the 1960s. Um, I'll do that. I'll paint, make it look um, plastic wiper blades, accepting, of yeah, course. Yeah, you... make, it, make it look like a two and go like a 250 GTO. And we'll, nobody will know. We'll put that at the Goodwood Revival under a plaque saying 1962 Ferrari 250 GTO. Who's to say? I don't know. But, um, I mean, it, it's interesting. They've sort of got caught out by the sounds of it, have they? Well, I think probably not in reality. Because everyone that goes, most, most people that go, just look and go, there's 300 million pounds worth of cars in this race. And then the people that like know more go, well, there isn't. 
Like there's a lot of there's a lot of million pound replicas driving around. Yeah. And there might be one original, you know, XYZ or or whatever. Um and then actually then it even splits into the people that are racing. And I think uh some of the series are quite particular about not allowing replicas. I think it gets quite difficult at a certain point, but they, they make a point of not allowing it. And then there's others that allow it. And the people that drive in it kind of know that that's the rules and therefore it kind of is what it is. The sort of... I don't like the the headline chasing of this one was reported by Goodwood as saying a £75 million 250 GTO spun out and set on fire and whatever. And they doubled down on the fact that it was a 75 pound, whatever. And you're like, well, it wasn't. It was still a million pounds, still really expensive. It's still basically a 250 GTO. It's just not one of the, however many there are, yes. original ones racing. Um, I, think it's, I think it's tricky. I, I would personally like them to have a little, like an R or something just on the, at the end. Because there are people that do race these cars and I feel like they should get like a little plus one on their thing for being like, this is original. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's a very, it's a very contentious subject, uh, dare I say. It. I mean, it's as, tricky. As, as I say, I don't know who's to know what actually goes on. Um, and, mm. But I suspect, I suspect that not all is as it seems really. But, uh, you know, well, I mean, as I say, they've been caught out with this one car and yeah. by the sounds of it. I haven't seen the article or whatever. No, and, and, but it's, it's, it's a funny one. And I think ultimately, like, they're cool cars. They're still really expensive. They're just not quite as many, 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 many. But I wouldn't, if someone had a real car, let's say a 250 short wheelbase or something, and they took the original engine out and put a different engine in to go racing, like, I don't think anyone can really, you're not going to have a go at them for doing that. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I think my surmising, and I, I have not studied this in any detail, I've, I've just looked at the clip once, I think, but as far as I understand it, it threw a rod through a missed gear change. It looks to me like it threw a rod out the side of the block due to over-revving, due to a missed gear change, and the oil caught light on the exhaust mm. manifold. I, I don't know, but I mean, it, that's one of the scenarios. Um, you certainly don't want to put a hole in the block in an original GTO engine. No. Um, but Ferrari, of course will supply a new block and stamped for a certain fee. Oh, really? Oh, yes. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Uh, so who's to say, you know, then we get into the extremely clinical world of um, old Ferrari authenticity and provenance. And I've been involved in, I've actually been an expert witness in some pretty high-profile legal cases in the past. One of them, Lord Brockett. Don't know whether you remember the Lord Brockett story. I have. I've met him. Right. Um, but yeah, he, he buried some cars, is that right? Yeah, he did, yes. Or chopped them up. Chopped them up in his garden, and then it was it an insurance claim yes, or something like that's that? that's right. Yeah, so I worked for, uh, for the, um, oh gosh, general accident, I think it was, at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, so all sorts can happen to a car in 60 years. Yeah. Um, but, you know, uh, yeah, it, it's... Um, it, the whole thing is is um, is is how many percentage of it is smoke and mirrors? That is the question. Yeah, and it's it is actually. I love details, 
And in whatever I do, like, I mean, we can see here, <laughs> kind of overkill for the setup for today. But um, I, I'm also slightly aware as time goes on that like life should be kind of fun and getting really, really nerdy about tiny details all the time can take away from that. If you, if you become that person that goes, Obviously, if something's a replica or completely different, then it's not what it says. But if it's pretty much what it says, but it's missing a, it's got the wrong bolt on a wheel or something, it's still basically what it's, you're looking at is still what it's meant to be. And it's just not quite right. And actually, the driving experience is going to be great. The owning experience is going to be great. And the more we sort of dive down and nerd out, you can take away from that. Equally, as the money goes up, you probably do have to, you've got to make sure whatever it is you're paying for is what you're paying for. Well, that, to use a very old expression, there's the rub. <laughs> that's, that's, the, um, that's the bit. It, it, what, what an owner does with a car is entirely up to them. But um, a car's intrinsic value, it's like, it's like a, a Picasso painting or whatever, you know. Um, it's... It's the details that make the difference. So, um, uh, yeah, that's um, you have to start from a baseline of it being one hundred percent right, I guess. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and do whatever you want after that, really. Yeah, totally. So you work on a lot of Italian cars. Yes, um, and the, I don't know, in the twenty-five minute divergence from me mentioning German cars, <laughs> we've got back to Italian cars. Having done a little Ferrari number. Presumably, getting parts, finding out what was done exactly right from factory, all of these sorts of things is quite a bit more interesting um, and involved than, let's say, some German stuff. Well, the it's very interesting. I mean, I've reflected on this over the years. Um, one of the German biz business models that has served them so well is the fact that they, yes, we think of them as very technology-driven. You know, the Mercedes S-Class has for decades been the sort of technological tour de force, first production car with anti-lock brake, with ABS, that, um, apart from the Jensen FF, but, you know, proper electronic mm. Bosch ABS, which, of course, is still very much with us. Um, things like that. We think of the Germans as being technologically um, right out there, which they are, but they also stick to their core values. And I think that's a very interesting um, dichotomy, very interesting combination. I mean, Br British Leyland tried to, you know, invent the wheel and make a 16-piece wheel and whatever else, you yeah. know, but they, they, they ran themselves ragged pioneering, which it, um, was great. And that's what, that's, the British are a nation of pioneers and some of it works and some of it doesn't. Um, but the Germans are very, as well as being technologically advanced, are very much into evolution rather than revolution. So you look at a Golf, for example. You know, the VW Golf, the Mark I, had one of its styling cues was thick C-pillars at the back, between the back window yeah. and, the, and the, the rear window. And they've still got that. They've carried that through. Yeah. To, what is it, Golf 8 we're on now or yeah. something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the, so the Germans are very good at sort of slow, not slow, but... Sort of thoughtful evolution. Considered evolution yeah. as well as the technology, whereas 
um, the Italians, the British um, are, are uh, more, more, a bit more chaotic than that, dare I say it, <laughs> yeah. which sometimes is, produces something utterly fantastic and other times um, it doesn't. Probably the exception to that were the original Rolls-Royce and Bentley. They were very much, very, very conservative. Um, uh, but, yeah, there you are. Long-winded answer, I guess. <laughs> so um, what, what's the majority of your business at the moment? Are you restoring cars, working on cars? What, what sorts of things? Well, we tend to, we have, our, um, we have sort of three strands, if you like. Uh, we have the full-on uh, long-term project, restoration project. So a car mm -hmm. comes, comes in. These days, car transportation at this level is all about covered trailers. Um, so we have a car arrives, may not even run, um, and we get commissioned to do a total grounded restoration on the car. So every last part. Then we have the sort of in middling jobs, um, which is a, a maintenance job. So can, can you do a service, but can you also maybe... Whoosh, I don't know, re restore the woodwork in a Rolls Royce or, you know, right, whatever, yeah. whatever, bit of paintwork. Um, and the third one is purely and simply servicing and tuning and out again. So they're the three main strands. Yeah. And when someone <clears throat> sends you a car for a restoration and it, it turns up, I'm going to, you've got quite a few mirrors around. Let's say a mirror turns up. Do do you have an idea of what a, like a I'm, I'm going to say general, but I presume there is no general like full restoration of a Mura roughly costs between these two bands, and then you say that to the customer, or do you go, we're just going to get going, and then you'll get no, a bunch of bills. We, we've we've got it a bit more uh, we've got it a bit more tuned <laughs> than that. <laughs> Pardon the pun, but um, no, we know we, it's you know we 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 give people a price, and if we can. Um, more often than not, we stick to it. We're not in the business of saying, oh, now we've stripped it, it's an extra 15%. Yeah. Of course, that, that can happen in extreme cases, but I try to avoid that. I'd like to think I run a bit of a tighter ship than that after mm. 40 years in the industry. Um, so, yeah, we can we can normally give people a number. And do you have, is there's certain cars that you're like, we just know that car, I don't mean like a, I mean a sort of model rather than a particular serial number. Um, is the the Mura is presumably one of those? Um, you mean in terms of restoring it? Yeah, so and like your sort of specialty of like <clears throat> these particular ones where you, you know we've done a ton. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, forgive me, but after forty years, I. I, I <laughs> I never knew from one moment to the next what was coming through the door. That was what really gave me a buzz, you know, whether it was somebody with a Monteverdi yeah. going to phone up and say, oh, you know, I've heard about you. I'd love to bring the car in. Like, yes, yes, yes. I remember the first time um, I got a Ferrari Daytona in. It was in the 1980s. And the guy rang me. And um, I mean, I was, you know, I was ever so young and ever so thin. People, people used to walk past me to go to the older guy who I'd taken with me <laughs> and say, I'm looking for Ian. <laughs> it was great. Worked every time. Nice. <laughs> I was the lackey. I was the T-boy, you yeah. know. Um, and um, uh, I remember the first time I got a Daytona in, um, I was so excited because the Daytona was one of my icons, really. Um, and he knew, he, he, you know, he, he knew I had not worked on Daytonas before, but he still, he was prepared to give me a shot, yeah. you know. 
And uh, he said, what's your labour rate? And I said, oh, it's, uh, it's £10 an hour. And he said, oh, that seems a bit cheap. And I said, oh, sorry, that's for ordinary cars. For Ferraris, it's £12 an hour. <laughs> oh, that's all right then. <laughs> nice, nice. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I guess um, it's a buzz seeing different cars come in. And, and I, I, I like that because I've... I've been invested over the years in lots of different makes and models. And, mm. um, you know, in, in the 40 years of not knowing what's going to turn up, that's put, I would like to think that's probably put me in a reasonable place with different makes and models, really. Yeah. And I guess that, yeah, that's, that's a great ability to go when something unknown, which must be getting rarer and rarer, comes in. Is there any, is there anything, that you're like, I really want one of those to turn up? Ooh, that's a good question. Ooh. Um, and why? Is there anything that still makes me stop and think? That is a, that's a super interesting question, actually. I'm just trying to think about that. I suppose, one thing that has eluded me, and, and there, are, there are obviously, quite rightly, there are people who uh, know far about them than I ever will, um, is Bugattis? I would, I would. Okay. Love it. Um, they've always sort of eluded me. I've, I've never worked on a Bugatti. Uh, I'd like to get, yeah, down a dirt. You know, really get get into a Bugatti, but um, I've never done so. The funny thing is, our claim to fame. Um, one of them here is James, our workshop manager. Um, actually, uh, went out with on a date, a few dates with uh, with Ettore Bugatti's oh, really? granddaughter. Yeah. <laughs> nice, nice. <laughs> when you look back or, or look at the different sort of marks, are there any things that stand out that one or other did particularly sort of differently or interestingly? And you go, oh no, this particular brand is different because they do this. Oh, totally. I mean, it's quite, a, it's, it's so interesting. Um, I mean, you look at something as mundane as a suspension arm mm. and you can identify which manufacturers oh, made really? it. Yeah. Uh, Mercedes tend to be um, quite high. I'm giving you an example now. They tend to be sort of curved, pressed, very, very um, uh, obviously highly engineered bits of kit with a particular shape and a particular design language. Um, and you look at a, for example, a Ferrari suspension arm, and it's bolted up from pieces generally, <laughs> um, which is fine, you know. Yeah. But that's that kept the costs down, and it, because they were making tiny numbers of them comparatively, yeah. um, and Rolls Royce tend to, everything tends to be over, completely over engineered on them. Um, so yeah, each each manufacturer does have a. Um, an interesting and and you know a, a particular way, and that's one of the one of the joys for me over the years. I guess that's because I mean, let's face it, a lot of mechanics who make it to the age of sixty get very jaded about yeah. the, the motor trade, yeah, yeah, quote yeah. unquote, um, and you know, rightly so, because the, uh, the public are not necessarily understanding sometimes, choosing his words carefully, of how long jogs take, take or what yeah. problems can crop up. Um, and um, the yeah the, the the one of the joys for me is getting into designers' heads. One of the things that sustained me over there is just think, oh, I wonder how they've done that. Oh, that's really interesting. How they've gone about that. Mm. And why is that suspension arm that shape? What's their philosophy? Yeah, etc. So 
Yeah, that's for me is one of the things, one of the joys is actually um, understanding the philosophy of the car, the different car manufacturers. Yeah, and and so you're saying, Rolls-Royce, you're saying heavily over-engineered <laughs> stuff. Is that, is there an area of cars you don't work on or you just kind of, you've sort of... I suppose I, I've worked on pre-war cars, uh, vintage and veteran uh I've worked on very few of those. Uh, done the odd work on a, an old Bentley, W.O. Bentley. Uh, done a, worked on a few of those, but um, I certainly do not specialise in them. But yeah, yeah. I mean, with the let's say the slightly older Rolls Royces and stuff like that, do they because of this? Do they just hold up much better over time, or is that just a Where's it being kept? What's it life's it lived sort of situation? Um, well, it, <laughs> um, it can actually be it can actually be counterproductive because okay. Rolls Royces, um, if you look at an old Shadow, you know that they, they were horrendously complex when they first came right. out. Probably exceeded only by the Mercedes six hundred. Um, and obviously, when you when you leave a car inactive, when you come to restore it, if you've got um, I mean, what one one ridiculous thing that they did on the very first shadows was the the front suspension. Instead of having coil springs for simplicity, reliability, they had a self leveling suspension system as well, which had a whole travel of one inch. Let me tell you, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, making a whole self leveling suspension system, supplementary system on top of the coil spring for an inch of wheel travel, you know, of ride height. Yes, it's just crazy, really. Yeah, that's that's it. It's probably knowing when to stop. <laughs> yeah, but at the time, it's good marketing material, isn't it, for the the new cars? You exactly selling. provided it works. I mean, Merce it works. Yeah. Mercedes six hundred, the comfort hydraulic system, right from the word go, caused them terrible problems. Really. Yeah, that's why they never used it on anything else again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love seeing these weird sort of things that pop up for one car or two or. Like a problem we seem to have at the moment, it's getting there, is like hybrid systems on modern cars. There's a whole sort of era of like, I don't know, five-year band of very expensive cars that have hybrid systems that when you dig into it, all of them have had problems and mm. all the problems are very expensive. And then we're now starting to see someone like Ferrari come out with a, Daytona, as they've called it, the SP3, yep. which is a LaFerrari without the hybrid system. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> For more money, like, okay. Yeah. yeah, I can see where this has gone. <laughs> well, I mean, it's. I mean, this is one of the. I, I, I'm going to have to be careful. I, I don't get too much into, um, into, uh, uh, global politics here, but um, the, the whole electric car thing. I mean, it takes 250 tons. I've read statistics of of disturbing the Earth's core to make one battery for one electric car. For possibly, for instance, possibly. Um, I've been reading a bit about this stuff recently because I, I want to sort of get more of an understanding of. I, I'm 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 trying to put myself in the middle um, of, of the sort of debate, argument, whatever you want to call it. Because um, some we mine stuff as a human race. Yeah. And we have done for a long time. Absolutely. And we do a lot at the moment already. So making a car, we mine a lot of stuff. To fuel a car, we dig a lot of stuff up out of the ground. A lot. Yeah. 
So this sort of transition into other materials we're going to have to dig up is going to happen, but we already do a lot of. So it's, I don't think it's necessarily so simple as just going like lithium, for example. There is a lot, there is a lot of lithium out there. How do we get it? Mm-hmm. Is is all the sort of debates in cobalt and where these places are stored and then refined? It's it's a complicated situation, but I don't think it. I don't think it's a clear. Well, crude, either way, crude oil is is just about the worst possible thing as well, yeah. isn't it? Really, like it's pretty nasty stuff. Uh, yeah, if you look at some of these places that are just getting trashed by oil, yeah, being yeah. pulled up and then spillages and whatever. I so agree. It's not a yeah, it's it's, uh, and from a health and safety point of view, the concept of a, of people pulling up, um, being able to pull a dispenser of extremely <laughs> flammable liquid out of a out of a uh, a piece of machinery and stick it in a car, and, yeah, you know, entrusting people to do that on their own without any help. I mean, that's that would never fly if that was uh, if that. Came I mean, along in some now. countries, they don't trust you to do it yourself; they do it for you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, which yeah. the first time I went somewhere where there was someone like helping you <clears throat> was such a weird experience because I just looked at this person like, "What are you doing? Like, get away from me!" And then like, "Oh, I'd, uh, blah, 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 yeah. oh, okay, okay, cool." Yeah, put well, some it's, put some fuel in. Well, it's their way of earning a their yeah. way of earning an extra living. Yeah, hundred percent. And it's quite it's quite it feels novel because yes. it's not normal. But you go to some countries. I've been to some. Um, I think when I was in Dubai. And people pull up. They don't even turn the engine off. They've got the aircon on. And they're just like, yeah, fill it up. Really? Yeah, I've seen that, which is Oof. kind of mental. Yes. Um, I don't think that's like super common, but I've, I've heard this, this can happen occasionally. Um, so I was having a look through your various things on the interwebs. <laughs> and you've, uh, you now do, and you have quite a pretty successful YouTube channel. Yeah. Uh, when when did you start making videos, and why did, why did you start making videos? Well, the, the answer to that is very simple. Um, it, it, this, like all the best things in life, this caught me by surprise. Really, um, I had never. I don't regard myself as uh, technic, techie savvy, you know, with interweb as you put it, um, <laughs> uh, things. But um, it was down to Harry Metcalf, yeah, uh, who. Um, has the most brilliant YouTube channel. Yeah, yeah it's very good. Um, and rightly has a, is phenomenally successful. And um, Harry and I, um, Harry bought his Espada from me uh, about, about 15, 16 years ago, something like that. And he, um, he approached me, we met at a car show and he said, would you like to rebuild the engine on the Espada? And I said, I'd be delighted to do that for you. Uh, I was on the Lamborghini uh, Espada 50th tour with him actually in Italy and his car was overheating all the time so he obviously had problems and um, so uh, we got the car and he said oh by the way I do these YouTube videos and I saw him talking to camera in Italy once or twice yeah. and I thought well, what on earth is he doing um, and then he said I, I, you know I've got this YouTube channel I'd like to make do some videos about the engine rebuild and we ended up doing a series of eight and people seemed to enjoy it and um, I have some uh, dare I say it, I have, my other hat is performing arts and theatre. Mm. So um, I can sort of stand in front of a camera and not go, so 
it, it worked and people said, we'd like to see more of Ian. And I sort of by default, just by accident, fell into, I thought, I'll give this a go. And all of a sudden, boom, we had 10 or 20,000 subscribers because they just copied and pasted from Harry's yeah. channel, which was great. So You're I, obviously doing something right, though. Like, that doesn't just happen. Well, oh, it's not for me to say. Yeah, no, I, I've, I've, watched, I've been watching some of your videos and like you clearly you put a lot of effort into it you clearly think about them a lot and and the content's good so keep keep it up for sure i think it's 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 great thank you um i did have an amusing email from somebody the other day who said when you use your cue cards i'd recommend you do this and that and aim the camera this way and i'm like thank you that's very that's very helpful just one problem i don't use cue cards <laughs> 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 nice. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, you did a, a video recently with a boat. Yes. Um, a Riva Aquarama Lamborghini. Um, I don't generally... I, I think I was looking at Rivas. I think that's that's how I came across. I was looking at wooden boats. Um just trying to find out a bit more about some and then and then saw your video and was like, oh, hang on a minute. I thought you did car videos. Um, and can you tell me a little bit about this boat and also and sort of how that came about? What on earth is going on there? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, it was through a mutual friend, really, uh, Olivier Namesh, who is a uh, is the, probably, I'm going to stick my neck out and say the world's leading Lamborghini historian. And... Um, he, he knows the Bellini family, principally because of this boat, um, and he introduced them to me and me to them, and the rest is history. Um, the, so this was a one-off boat. People think they made several Riva Aquarama Lamborghinis. No, this was, Ferruccio Lamborghini was um, one of the most wealthy Italian industrialists. He could have anything he wanted uh, in the late 60s, and he decided to have a Riva, and he didn't want the sort of, created American V8s in it. He wanted two of his engines. So that's how it came into being. They strengthened the hull, etc., And uh, the boat was born. And um, the boat has been restored by some people in Holland who did a lovely job of it. And I, I, the, the, I visited the Bellina family. We built up a good rapport. And uh, um, it was agreed that I could do a video on the boat. And they, they invited me to tune the engines on it for them before an event to balance the carburettors, etc. Uh, so that's what I did, and that's how it came. And I thought, this is going to be a sufficiently interesting video that it will be, it'll it'll fit within the channel because it's car, yeah. it's adapted, marinized car engines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's sufficiently different that I think it'll get people's attention. And are the engines quite different from, like, how do you have to adapt a car engine to run in a boat? Because water and engine is obviously not a good thing, but... Mm. How, how do they sort of adapt them? Well, um, the the Riva one was a bit of a challenge. Uh, normally what you have is instead of using water from outside to run through the water jacket in the engine, you have a heat exchanger. So uh, the engine has its own cooling circuit with a radiator like in the car, except that the radiator... Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. 
at Plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Actually mixes with seawater, not air, or or leak water. So um, the engine is sort of still kept apart, but um, the... I think because of propeller torque with having two props going the same way, they actually reverse the direction of one of the... So one turns clockwise and one turns anti-clockwise. But that actually wasn't a problem because the Mura engine, the engine already turns anti-clockwise. Oh, okay. So it was all all there, really. Just a question of joining the dots. I'm oversimplifying it massively here, but that's, (laughs) that's the basic concept. Yeah. It's 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 like it, it, you did a very good way of explaining the boat, the history of the boat, and I'm I'm watching this video. I'm going, hang on a minute. I feel like this is a really expensive boat. Like if if there's a boat that's going to be worth a lot of money, this boat is going to be worth a lot of money. Do you have any idea what um, something like that is worth? Uh, yes, I do. Can you say no? Okay, fair enough. Um, it's it's into seven figures. Let yeah. me put it that way. Yeah. Okay. Um, but uh, no, I can't. I can't say no. Fair enough. Um, and in the video, you do something which I believe is like one of your things, which is tuning V twelve Lamborghini engines and possibly other ones um, with a bit of pipe. Yes. Talk me through this process, and and can you also talk me through like sort of what you're doing on the mechanical end as well? Yeah. Well, okay. Um, this this is a bit of a this is a bit of mischief and quirkiness on my part, really, because <laughs> um, I mean there are there's a scientific way of doing it, and there's an artisan way of doing it, if I yeah. can put it that way. So the scientific way of doing it is you use vacuum gauges and uh, what's called a manometer, which is a small handheld device that you stick over the top of a or the side of a carburetor intake, assuming you can get at it with this thing, and you do it that way, um, and for that doesn't, it doesn't require um, any sort of artisan input. Mm. You just adjust screws and things. And, but but that, that will give you um, a scientific result, which doesn't necessarily compensate for any slight anomalies or anything like that. Okay. It does, but it doesn't. So um, what I, because, um, as I alluded to earlier, because I'm into music, um, I actually... Uh, have been quite into music in my life. I studied double bass for seven years. I'm a professionally trained singer, etc. Okay. Um, it, it it's given me a musical ear, and um, what I'm listening to with the hosepipe is both quality and quantity of the noise I'm hearing. So the thump as the cylinder pulls the charge in, assuming it's a one carburetor per cylinder, that's what I'm listening for compared to the other thumps to make them all equal. 
and that requires adjusting screws to balance to let more air in to balance everything okay. up and then it's about adjusting the mixture um and um that bit of it i i can't particularly explain okay uh, I mean, or I don't want to particularly yeah, no explain. Worries. No worries. <laughs> um, the it's quite funny. I had a conversation. I went to California um, a few months ago, and I had a conversation with a guy there who is he's got his own repair shop. He says I use an oscilloscope to tune car engines, so I will look for the wavelength and yeah. blah blah blah. And I said that's great. Um, and he was sort of having a go at the way I yeah. tuned engines. Uh, I said that's great. You know, wonderful. He said, um, so what do you do? I said, well, I'll listen for the harmonics. And that was it. That was the end of that conversation. He had nothing to say to that yeah. whatsoever. Um, and my musical ear has sort of served me, stood me in good stead, really. And I, I just, for me, it's far more satisfying having an engine running perfectly, if I may say it, super smoothly, yeah. to being able to adjust things through intuitive stuff. Yeah than just um, sticking a load of pipes on it or and whatever. Sort of dialing it in yeah. electronically sort of um, thing. Yeah. The, the results may end up the same more often than not, but sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just, you can't adjust engines properly with vacuum gauges, no matter how hard you try. And I have tried both. This is not me being uh, yeah. uh, dismissive. Um, so, yeah, it's just, um, it's, it's a little bit of, it, it's... It's a USP, if you like, these days. I mean, loads of people. There used to be lots of people. When I started, um, you know, tuning a carburetor, setting up a carburetor engine was quite common, really. Yeah. Um, but not anymore. Because I know, like, I have a... It's currently for sale, if anyone's listening and wants it. A backdated 911. Um, Good plug. An SC. And hopefully it will have sold by the time this goes out, but who knows. <laughs> um, and, and that's on, on Webers. And... Is it now? I remember trying to get someone like the, the the mix wasn't right or whatever, and I was like, okay, can you just sort this out? And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's kind of complicated. <laughs> I was like, okay, and they've adjusted it and and it ran correctly, and then I went to somewhere with a completely different altitude and a completely different temperature, and it ran a bit differently and changed the exhausts and stuff. Mm. And you're like, okay, this I'm starting to learn that these things are not. It's not quite. The same as a modern car where you just dial it in through the ECU, which is in comp which is yeah. clever and does a lot of stuff and measures a lot of parameters, but there is an art to it. Um, yes. When you're listening in and stuff, is it a, a similar sort of thing? I play the guitar. Yep, great. When you're tuning art an instrument, there's a certain like resonance that happens when you get to a certain the frequencies, which obviously you sort of learn over time. But when a guitar goes in tune, it to my ears, it almost like sings at the point that it's in tune, which is a wit I, I can't really explain why that would be the case, because it's just a set of frequencies or something. Um, do you get a similar sort of thing when you get to this this point? Yeah, I, I, I do, yes. Uh, I mean, it's very interesting. I, I'm trying to just trying to process and uh and comment on your on your um your comments i mean it's i guess what you're saying is you know the difference between when it's wrong and when it's right i, I think that's it i think it's it's probably years and hours of playing in tune as such yeah 
And because of that, my ears do know, and even, I, I tune with a tuner and whatnot, but there's something, there's just something, and I, I couldn't tell you if I shut my eyes, that would be the real test, like whether it comes, but they, the instrument almost seems to come alive just at a certain point when it's just at the right frequency. Right. Well, one thing to bear in mind um, is that every, every note has several sub-notes going on with it. And this is what I'm sort of driving at, really, mm. with, the, with the tuning of the carburetors, etc. Um, you know, you, you have supernumeraries, as they're called, um, okay. within every note. So harmonics, octaves, whatever yeah. it is, either side of it. And maybe that's what you're latching yeah, onto yeah, as well. If the, sup if the note is right, the supernumeraries will be right as well. Yeah. It's quite a, it, this is quite a deep subject, actually. Let's, 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 let's not tangent but I want to go, I want to get into sure. this music stuff. So I said this music stuff, it's quite a broad, deep topic, music in general. But um, you're obviously a fan of music. You play music. Is this something like, you know, that has been going along alongside all of the car stuff forever and you've been exploring? Um, well, it's, it's <laughs> um, what, what happened in the 1990s, I... Um, for fun, I used to, uh, I used to sing in, I used to play in classical orchestras with the double bass, mm -hmm. etc. Never thought of myself as a singer at all, and I, um, for, for relaxation and leisure, joined a, an operatic society locally, etc. And was sort of skulking about, shuffling my feet at the back of the stage yeah. in the chorus, you know. And then we all got an opportunity to sing a bit of a song for a charity benefit show. Actually, I'm in quite a big theatre and. Um, I, uh, I I sang a portion of a song, and there were a couple of ex-professional singers in the uh, in the company, and they said, "You should pursue that. You know, you can nice. hold the tune." So I thought, "Oh, great, okay." And one thing led to another, and a friend's um, stepfather was a, a music promoter, and blah blah blah, and he'd he'd, he'd sung worked his way around the cabaret circuit in Wales. I mean, cool to hear me talk about earning a living <laughs> an interesting way. Um, but, he, you know, it, he learned. He learned how to work a mic yeah. and et cetera. So he taught me all this stuff over a period of time. And then um, I, I, uh, I had a customer at the garage who was a, uh, a very well-known music producer, Did, does composition for TV and, and things like that. And we... We became Pally, and in fact, we're still very, very good buddies. And uh, he had a broadcast quality recording studio. He worked two tenths of a second on music to picture for mm. TV and films and things okay. like that. Very disciplined stuff, you know. And um, he said to me one day, "Why would you? Can, why did we? Why don't you come into the studio and we'll do some demos?" And I was like, "What?" <laughs> I was a slithering mess on the floor. This, this, you know, I was shocked yeah. that he would invite the likes of me to do this, really. And um, so we did. And uh, I got a, um, we did a demo and then I did a concert with a, I started to get work with big bands. My, my sort of favourite singing style is um, the Michael Bublé, to give it more Frank Sinatra yeah. and Nat King Cole, that sort of swing stuff. Um, and uh, I, as, a, as a kid, I went to a Sid Lawrence orchestra concert with my mum and dad. My dad knew Sid Lawrence's brother, and we went. And I was completely blown away by the dynamics of big band music. It was just yeah. stunning. So, um, 
anyway, uh, I, I began to sing with big bands in the uh, the late nineties, and um, we sent a demo. Somebody who uh, blah blah blah, friend of a friend of a friend, um, uh, went over to the US, and before I knew it, uh, it was another, it was like that phone call at nineteen about working on Rolls Royces. This guy got in touch with me, this American musician who turned out to be Frank Sinatra's bass player. Thank you very much. Nice. And he got in touch with me and said, would you like to, I would like to contract you to come over and sing with me in the US. Oh, wow. So um, I, uh, I was still working on the cars, but I was able to do that. I went for two weeks, it turned out. Uh, this was in 1998, actually, sorry. And um, it was amazing. It was completely frightening, but it was completely amazing. <laughs> and he owned a jazz club in, uh, in Savannah in Georgia called Hard Hearted Hannah's, which Clint Eastwood used to patronise quite a lot, for example. He made a movie there in Savannah. Um, and um, it, was, it was amazing. I, got, um, I met the most uh, amazing people. Um, you've heard, have you heard of John Coltrane? The, yeah. Right, his son Ravi was one of the band members. Okay. Um, they were, we were all just there for the jazz festival, and um, I ended up singing live on NBC TV with Ben, ben wow. and his band. Um, and uh, in fact, that video is on YouTube. Is it? I'll go and have a look, yeah. Um, and uh, he called me the Frank Sinatra of Europe, Ben. Nice. Ben Tucker, his name was, this this bass player. Um, and ah, that was amazing, you know? So I came back here and um, uh, the, cars, the cars took over again. Simple as that. The music yeah. sort of worked, but it didn't. And um, I had a bit of a personal situation in 2000 which took me off track um in in a in a good way um and i won't it's not appropriate to go into that here but sure. um uh i sort of wrote a song in 1999 and uh started to do some stuff and then it just um all stopped in 2000 um but that was how i got into the singing really wow that's it's I love hearing basically the other stuff people are interested in because it's very easy when you meet someone. Um, and actually my, not previous guest, but a couple back, we were talking earlier about Rob Wilson. He's a big musician, plays in a band, um, plays a bass actually. And we had a good chat about that, but it was actually, it was off recording. Right. And, but, and I, I don't generally talk about too much other stuff on recording just because it doesn't not because it just hasn't come up or whatever but often it's really easy to see people just as the thing that you see them for yeah. when like everyone has other passions yeah. and they're normally possibly quite a lot more interesting than whatever you're there to talk to them about um but I, I, that's that's cool um do you think that that brings something, I guess, with the, the tuning and, and whatnot, to this space, having, you know, that side of you? Yeah. Um, I mean, to, to, to go back to um, what you were saying about, you know, you're tuning your guitar, once I have tuned an engine, it, it's, for me, it's, it's a fantastic buzz to be able to take nice. that car out, out on the road and hear that engine sing, literally. Yeah. You know? Everything is perfect on that engine. The, the, you know, the whole lot. There are so many adjustments and things. Modern cars, everything's clinical. It's all computer yeah. controlled, which is great. 
Um, but on classic cars, it's a whole different ball game. And to have all that working like a huge symphony of parts and things is fantastically satisfying for me. Now I'm going to have in the back of my mind, if I ever end up in an Italian exotic, Countach or something, I'm like, okay, I need I need to call in, get him on the phone. He probably won't be able to stand it. I want to tell you, is this correct? Like, am I, is what I'm hearing, am I getting 10% less than I sh- the symphony that I really need because some things are out of whack? Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, well, funnily enough, that's very funny you should say that, but um, I, do have, I do have people around the world, customers, who actually ask me to diagnose problems on the phone. So I've got this noise. Okay. And they put the they put the phone right. Can I? Yeah. Can you just position it another foot away from the engine? I'm not quite getting the right frequencies, and um, and I actually diagnose problems over the phone for them. Nice in Hong Kong or wherever. Yeah, it's it's actually amazing how often people dismiss noises. Mm. And I, I'm sure I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I had a little incident with my 911 getting out of my garage. Um, I was reversing and then I heard a noise and I thought, well, there's nothing there. So that can't be anything. And I kept reversing. I ended up trapping a tire in between my car and the door and it caused a bit of damage. It was not, it was not great. It's all fixed now. But if there's a noise that doesn't sound normal and we all drive, you know, we've all got any car you own will make a certain amount of noises most of the time. And then you'll suddenly go, hang on, what's that click? What is that? And then lots of people go, ah, it'll be nothing. Turn the radio up. <laughs> Turn the radio up. That was, that's the standard motor trade fix <laughs> yeah. for most of these noises. You can't hear it when the engine's running full, uh, full chat. It can't be a problem. Like, no, these are mechanical things. When something changes, it's broken. Exactly. It's not getting better. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, the funny thing is, just to digress on that subject, um, one, one interesting um, thing I've found over the years that German cars in particular, if they develop a noise like that, sometimes the noise can go away afterwards mm. and sometimes it can come back. But if you do it, if you get a noise like that in other uh, cars made from other nations, you tend to, you should be more worried because they tend to stay. <laughs> <laughs> it's something about because German components are built to a high standard or something, sometimes... Um, the noise cannot be quite as as much of a death rattle or whatever as it is in other nationalities. Yeah. Strangely enough. That is weird. But then I, now I'm like, what is it? Yeah, but what is that? Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a funny one. So getting parts and things for some of the builds you're doing, I presume you can't just order them all from a what would be called a catalogue, but a website nowadays? Uh, well, there are, there are cottage industries that, that specialise in supplying parts for even specific makes and models. But the problem is they're not made to the same quality as right, they were yeah. originally. Um, uh, you know, they may not be even made in, in Europe or the UK or wherever. And um, people, pe- they go, people go on... A, we go on a, a company's website and they're, oh, wow, a rotor arm for pound fifty. That's crazy. Yeah. But, you know, it's made out of, you know, recycled chocolates or yeah. something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, something else unmentionable, yeah. you know. And um, it, it's just not fit for purpose. And that's So one of the challenges for us, A, we do make parts 
sometimes on a one-off basis. But secondly, is the part we're buying actually any better than the worn-out part that was on it already? Yeah. That's a real problem, actually. And how do you get, how do you sort of work with that? With difficulty. (laughs) Um, 99% of the time we get it right. Occasionally we get it wrong because we buy a part in good faith and it, and it, the car has a running problem, for example. We fit the part, and then we discover after throwing and wasting man-hours at this thing that it's actually the new part that's contributing to the problem as well. Oh, yeah. You know? That is annoying. Um, yeah. Especially as you were saying, you do a lot of mechanical parts. Mechanical parts going wrong often send cars off roads. <laughs> yeah, or, or, electron- or electrical parts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you um, do you three get stuff three D printed? Can you use three D printing? We do. We're increasingly yes. I'm 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 officially screaming and shouting coming into the twenty first century, and we do get parts three D printed with fantastic success. Actually, what sort of materials can you three D print these things? Uh, well, I'm I am sure um, at the risk of maybe sounding a bit too self deprecating, I'm not exactly sure what you can print these days. Uh, what sort rub, of things are you rubber plastics rubbers okay. and plastics we do yeah um i'd like to i'd like to investigate more of that because i think you can i think you can 3d print in aluminium and metal and yeah, other materials I think, now. I think you can definitely do some um it, the sort of trim parts yeah that for me especially because everything gets thing covered in leather and whatnot that makes so much sense yes yeah um we could we yeah we we uh, we've had door handles 3D printed, etc. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, it's a brave new world, all that. It really is. And it does get us out of trouble. It really yeah. does, you know? Yeah, because presumably, especially the cars you work on, you could get to a point. Are, are there any, let's say, of the sort of, I don't know, cars that most people have heard of, are there any parts that you can think of that just nowadays are like, if you lose a fuel pump in a whatever, that's going to take three years and a lot of money. Are there any particular standout, you know, parts that just are ridiculous to get hold of? Oh, yes. Um, we've got a, a particular old Ferrari here at the moment, and they made very few of these cars to start with. And the, uh, like a lot of specialist car manufacturers, Aston Martin, Ferrari, Lamborghini, they all take parts from other makers' parts bins to make mm. them work. So in Ferrari's case at this time, it was Alfa Romeo and Fiat were the biggest ones. Yeah. But um, sometimes um, the mechanical bits aren't as much of a problem because um, they tend to engine parts... Um, that manufacturers tended to use engines in more than one make and model. So engine parts yeah. are more commonplace, if I can simplify it in that way. But body parts, trim bits, oh, yeah. they are the worst. An old car that they made 20 of, and, you know, a yeah. third of the car arrives, that's a problem. That's a problem. And what and what do you do in that situation? Uh it's quite often it involves quite a bit of detective work because we have to find out a hopefully um we have to find out if they if they did indeed use parts from other makes and models of cars yeah that's 
even, but the the, the other model, make a model of car they might only have made 500 of, you know. So, I mean, we're up against it again then, you know, yeah. that's another lay, layer of, of um, difficulty. Yeah, it is difficult. Um, sometimes, you know, we, we really struggle with this sort of stuff. We really do. If it's not that easy to make, um, a little fiddly door lock mechanism or something like that, oh, sometimes these things can just take so much time and energy to sort out, really. Are owners clubs useful in this situation for some stuff? Yes, they are. Um, yeah, and, and the, the flip side of that is, funnily enough, still things come up. I suddenly find body panels for a, a 1950-something or other, you know, have been languishing in somebody's garage yeah. for the last 70 years or something. You know, we've got these new old stock bits for sale. It does happen, you know? Yeah, that's quite cool. And then I guess you get these bits. If it's interior stuff, it's probably all right. But every now and then you probably get stuff and you're like, I mean, it still doesn't fit that great. <laughs> exactly, because sometimes they built the car around it and it wasn't the same as the next one on the production yeah. line, you know. Yeah, all these, all these, uh, but I mean, it's, I suppose um, it's better than, it's better than doing something boring, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Our, um, I keep mentioning the Mura, but it's quite a cool car and there's quite a few here. Are they, Mura to Mura, are they quite similar amongst the builds? Or there is it a lot of like hand work? Um, if you took a door off one, would it fit on another one? No, absolutely <laughs> not. No. Um, yeah, th in that respect, there is a lot of hand fettling. Yeah. Um, a lot of these cars had that because labor was cheap in comparison mm. to now. Uh, E-type Jaguars, for example, you can't take a door off an E-type and put it on another one because the beyond the back of the door, the, the C-pillar area, um, they used, they actually lead-loaded it. Okay. Which means they got sticks of lead and they actually melted it with a torch and put it on like putty, oh, wow. basically. That's good and that me. was how they built up the door the door pillar. Oh, wow. Um, you know, just even as recently as, I, I was quite surprised because I went around the Bentley factory a few years ago and they were still making the Mulsanne saloon mm. and they were still lead-loading the C-pillars on the Mulsanne in the 21st century. What? Why would you do that? Um, because because of the very low production volumes, and also um, they they probably didn't have access to um, computer to the very latest computer programs yeah. to to design body panels that fitted together perfectly. It's hand built cars. I mean, you, it's either an advantage or a disadvantage depending on yeah. how you feel about these things. But. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so yeah, they're, yeah, hand built, very much hand built, it's, unique. It's quite yeah, and it makes these things. It does it does add character, whatever character is. There yeah. is something characterful about things that aren't quite right in a precision machine kind of way. Yes, um, I think I agree with you. I think one of the cop outs for a lot of people with classic cars. Uh, particularly people who repair them. Oh, they all do that, sir. You know? Disagree. 
they don't. <laughs> Mine know. didn't three days ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know. um, and, uh, you know, I've had some absolute dogs in. I mean, they looked nice. They've been restored, quote unquote, as in people have taken the bits off, yeah. painted them and put them back on again. That is not a restoration. You've got to make them work properly as well. Um, and they, they've been driven absolutely appallingly um, because people have just sort of thrown them together without without actually, you know, knowing what the... They think they should all drive like that. Yeah. They absolutely should not. That's what, you So, know. okay then, you get a car in, and it's one of your specialties, is getting cars in that you don't necessarily know too much about yeah. or that particular model. How do you know what it's meant to be like? Uh, I mean, everything needs to be straight and all that stuff, I guess. Yes, yeah. Um, everything done up. <laughs> well, I mean, again, I maintain bodywork is not my. Yeah, is not my. You know, I, I do. I do know about different finishes and what's right and what's not on various makes and models. But um, mechanically, well, it's yeah. It, it's it's an interesting question because sometimes I've had a car in and I've driven it and the gear change hasn't felt all that wonderful on it. Um, and I thought, oh, that must be what they're like. I've fallen into this trap yeah. myself. And then I get another example of that car in, and the gear change is absolutely amazing on it. And I think, oh, well, this is what they should be like. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. Um, well, this is, again, it goes back to our earlier, our earlier conversation. Um, with people who knew about these things dying off, to, put, yeah. to be blunt about it, the authority over what is right and what is acceptable and what's not can be become hazy, can't it, really? Yeah, you know? totally. And with a lot of, especially now, the, let's say, older Ferraris or whatever, they've all got, they've got expensive now. And, well, they were expensive to start off with. But if you go and test drive a car, one, are you even allowed to test drive it? Question mark. Often you're not. Um, and then you don't you're not going to if you're going to well let's say a Daytona or F40 F50 or something like that or a Mura you're not going to be able to back to back five cars no and then go hang on a minute like instruments you go you've got to try them all and you go well that, that's the best one it, I can look at all the paperwork and all the stuff and blah 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 and as long as it is what it says it is that one just drives a lot better or plays a lot better than the other things. But you don't, you, it's very difficult to do that now. Mm. That's why I'm calling you up and I'm saying, listen, does this engine sound right? <laughs> <laughs> I normally wrap these up with five questions. Right. Oops. You ready? Ooh. Oh, no, they're, they're all right. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? Uh, well, that, that I can answer fairly easily, actually. Um, yes, I do. Uh, I used in the 1990s. I was uh, sort of the technical reference for the Ferrari Owners Club of Andalusia in the south of Spain. Cool. And we had some very interesting people in that club, um, and we had some very interesting driving. I mean, there had there was all sorts of Ferraris. The oldest cars we had there were three two eights, and one of those was owned by an ex Hollywood stunt driver. Um, we had, and I think the um, my friend um, uh, who I started building a relationship with them with had a mm. three five five Spider, and uh, we had various cars in between four five sixes, etc. Uh, even the Daytona, I remember. 
And there was a road, there was a road from Marbella to Ronda in the south of Spain. And it's a fantastic driving road. But boy, it's quite dangerous because it's, it's, it's switchback bends around hillsides with blind corners and no barriers to stop oh, you going nice, over the nice. edge. Um, and we gradually, because of the egos involved <laughs> and because of the cars and because of the not wanting to lose face, etc., the speed ratcheted up yeah. and ratcheted up. And it was basically a road race. Um, you know, so, um, and the Ronda Road is fantastic. But I mean, it was basically, I dread to think the uh, what other road users thought oh, of yeah. it. Um, but that, yeah, we we had a few fantastic trips up the Ronda Road, in a, and I was driving a three five five Spider, which was almost current at the time. Nice, that was good fun. Yeah, I imagine that was. What um, other other cars you've driven over the years? Are there any standouts that were particularly maybe special? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I've said I said this on the video about it at the time, but one car that caught me by surprise was the BMW M1. Um, I never particularly liked the look to, looks of those. Mm. And the, the story was a bit of a mishmash because uh, BMW contracted Ferrari to build them, um, um, Lamborghini to build them for them, and then Lamborghini ran off with the money, money to develop <laughs> a 4x4, which <laughs> sort of didn't happen yeah. but did. Um, and uh, so it, it sort of it, it sort of fudged its way. It, it, it was almost... Um, destined to fail right from the start but fail it did not it became the the m1 which was a, a great car and the first time i drove one in the 90s i had one in for work i thought this is amazing because it even the interior is not very inviting it's three series yeah. switch gear and instruments and stuff and uh, i thought oh, oh yeah it's only a little three and a half liter straight six you know blah 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 what a great car handled fantastically that was one that caught me by surprise, for sure. That's, yeah, they're, they're cool. Now, having driven stuff, uh, let's say something like that, then, have you driven, let's say, the same or, you know, a sim the same car more recently and felt a difference because of purely this is what they were like when they were new versus this is what they're like now or even restored? Because presumably, there, I feel like there is a difference between a brand new car off the line whenever it was made and even a freshly restored car now. They're not quite the same. Yeah. Um, provided, I mean, it goes, it goes back again to how well is it set up, you know. Cause, yeah, um, this is a huge part, I guess. Uh, you know, this is such a big thing with classic cars. You know, to go back to there, they all, they all do that, sir. You know, that yeah. noise is normal. <laughs> no, it most definitely is not, <laughs> you know. Um, all that business. If they're set up properly, obviously they won't be, they won't be particularly fast by today's standards. Uh, what is the maximum speed on an M1? 160, 165 miles an hour? Um, but But they should still feel satisfying to drive like your 911 you know yeah. it's not the fastest car on the face of the earth but it should still provide pleasure and satisfaction and dare i say it you know um it's going to be more accessible on a public road totally than a hypercar yeah um so which one gives which one gives you more pleasure actually in reality once oh, you, um once you get the posturing and the price tag and everything else out I'm, the way i'm totally leaning towards sort of 
had all, all sorts of cars. And I'm sort of taking, I think, getting to a point where I'm going for a divide, which is like, I'm not ready for a Rolls Royce. But let's just say Rolls Royce, comfy, luxury, quiet, waft down the motorway, bit of tech, whatever. And then old and kind of, I'm going to say slightly sketchy, not in a mechanical way, but just you you feel like you're going fast when you're not going that fast. Yeah. And everything in between, I'm kind of like, I'm not, I'm not that bold about anymore. Mm. Um, that's just where I am like yeah. right now in my, in my headspace. Um, if you could only drive one car, one sports car for the rest of your life, oh. what would it be? Oh, damn me. Oh, that's, um, I've been in the fortunate position over the years where I, I have had so access to so many cars to be able to drive because I've always had cars needing road testing or something. Yeah. And it sounds like some Especially sort of... they're really interesting. <laughs> well, it sounds like some sort of glib comment, but it's true, actually. Um, to, to be able to just drill down to one car. Oh, wow. And you said sports car, not any car. I, well, the reason I said sports car is because this question has evolved slightly over time. When Ooh. I just said one car for the rest of your life and you can have another car that's like 500 quid or that's probably, that's probably gone up a bit, maybe a thousand pounds on the side. So that could take your practical sort of duties out of the way, but you've only really got one, one nice car. That's, um, okay, I'm going to... Going to answer that by saying a car I would never normally have chosen, but I, I can think of, I can think it would fit the bill, and that is a nine eleven. And what nine eleven? Oh, too harsh. <laughs> <laughs> now <What>? you <laughs> let's let's I can I can without like going too far, but I can okay. What sort of you know what era what oh. what age? Because oh. there's a lot out there. Oh dear me. Okay, I would probably say. A 993. Ooh. And which 993? Oh. Um, and, I mean, I've had some good drives in 964s and 993s, so that era... I'm just thinking the modern ones, again, fall into the... They're, fanta you know, they're fantastically engineered cars, etc. Um, but, you know, on the one hand, you don't want to... This is oh, this is where the, all these things are. You know, you want a car to be sink, scintillating and captivating, but you don't want to you don't want it to be able drowning you with a hundred decibels of exhaust noise the whole time. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's ah, um, I guess because they're um, they're a classic, but they're still they're very much a classic air cooled Porsche, mm. but they're still uh, modern enough to not have too many horrendous. Yeah, you still got ABS, whatever, all that sort exactly. of stuff. Exactly, yes, yeah. So like a... Carrera 4S, maybe, yeah. something like that, yeah. I think that would be good. That And that is, as you say, it's quite a nice sort of middle point to go, you've got the classic, in inverted commas, wherever you want to be on the line, sort of experience, hair cold, et cetera, yeah. but you've still got reasonably reliable... Yeah, you would like to think it would get you engine management system, all this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think is the most undervalued car at the moment? What should be worth more? Oof. Well, that, that is uh, that is a question people have been asking me for a very long time. Um, undervalued car. Well, I I sort of think 
um, 80s and 90s young timers, as the Germans call them, are, I think they're, they're interesting. I mean, a lot, of, a lot of these cars have already flown the coupe. The RS Turbo, Turbo I did a um, Escort RS Turbo Mark One. I. I did a video on a while back there, sort of for a, a fabulous one. 45, 50,000, and Sierra Cosworths, of course, go for crazy money as yeah. well. Um, so they've sort of flown the coop, really. But I think there's still some way to go. Um, quirky, quirky 90s cars, probably, I would say. Um, Audi Quattro, maybe. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, I, th I think um, there are enough people who... who these cars were aspirational for in the 90s who are now a little bit older yeah. and who have the cash to buy a toy like that and they want you know to fulfill their schoolboy dreams i think that's yeah that would yeah. be where i'm thinking yeah i think that sound, that sounds like a good a good answer it is it, it's it's the as you say it's the, it's the schoolboy dream cars they're the ones that people are going to want when they've got money absolutely um yeah. right most interesting car to you at the moment what are you sort of thinking about, looking up, Googling? Oh. Um, do you mean in general or cars that I work on? In, in general. In general. It could include cars you work on or not. Well, sometimes these things, sometimes these things creep up on me, strangely mm. enough. You sort of, um, I mean, <laughs> okay, you asked the question, I'm going to answer it. But um, it, sometimes it can just be, things can just appear in your consciousness that... That that have that just have absolutely not up until that moment, yeah. and you think, oh, that. Strangely enough, um, a car I was just looking at on the internet a couple of weeks ago was the Peugeot RCZ. R yeah. is it? Uh, the two hundred and sixty brake horsepower okay. RCZ. Yeah, and I thought, hmm, that's either going to be a big disappointment to drive, or it's actually going to be quite interesting because they're, they're not they're not expensive at the moment, right. and they're cool looking cars. Yeah, they are. But but does the driving experience match the looks? I suppose really. I don't know. I, d I don't know. I remember when they first when they came out, and I was like, "Oh, they're cool!" Like that, I, I like them. And then I remember looking up. I don't know whether there was an R at that point in time. And they just weren't. They just weren't quick at all. Like absolutely. But yeah. relative to, they had the quick car looks. Yeah. But they. I remember just looking up the specs and the engines and was like, "Nah, no." But I'm no longer interested because they're just not, they're not as quick as other quick stuff yes. of, of the time. But um, but yeah, a cool looking car. Five car garage, unlimited value. Well, there are two, there are two cars I would think of straight away. One is a Miura mm -hmm. um, and the other one, I, I happen to love Daytonas very much. Okay, let's get slightly specific then. Would you, what Miura would you have? Uh, oh, well, it's got to be an SV. And how is the SV distinguished from the normal one? Um, well, the SV, um, I've been in the fortunate position, again, this is, goes back to one of my earlier videos, to meet Marcello Gandini at his house, and I drove the Italian job Miura there. That's pretty cool. Um, as well. Um, talk about... Uh, <laughs> Ticking your bucket list yeah, with yeah, about yeah. fifteen That's a great simultaneous to make videos. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
And he he told me he he walked me round the Miura, and this this again I'm plugging my own videos here horrendously, but yeah, it's worth a watch. Yeah. Um, and he told me why he styled different bits of the car in different ways. Okay. And um, the we're just going to dive very very deeply into Lamborghini history here. Lamborghini have always had a very close relationship with Pirelli tires. And the styling of Lamborghini cars, to a certain extent, was limited by the tyre technology of the time. Okay. So he styled the Miura with sort of um, that quite narrow back body. Um, and and he, he was always frustrated, he told me, by the fact that the wheels were set quite deep inside the arches, visually. Mm. But also handling-wise, um, the Miura was capable of a lot more cornering power than... It actually had originally, and with the SV, because Pirelli had developed a wider low-profile tire, uh, okay. the Miura was able to be upgraded to match the tire technology, and that's why the SV drives better than the other Miuras. So that's nice. there you are. That's the reason, and the SV, of course, has the bigger rear haunches and the wider rear tires. So there you go. Um, Daytonas, I just love Daytonas. I think they're fantastic cars. Uh, I love the. Obviously, these days there are plenty of cars, 550s, that will see them for dead performance-wise. But I love the character of the engine. Yeah, it's just got big lungs. That engine, just um, a great engine. And I love. I think the Daytona for me is one of the best-looking cars ever built. What else? I'd probably have a Q car like a Mercedes 6.9 or a Mercedes 6.3, mm -hmm. and probably uh, <laughs> don't laugh a Rolls-Royce Camargue. And uh, because when I was a kid. Um, in the 70s, the Camargue came out when I was 12, actually. And uh, it was so unreachable, so utterly inaccessible. Mm. It was the most expensive production car in the world. And uh, to actually be able to meet my heroes, if you like, yeah, 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 yeah. is, uh, you know, it's, yeah, it's not the most exciting car to drive, but I just love I love them. Yeah, everything about it, it brings it all back and, yeah. and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's cool. Okay, so have you got four? Is that that's four? That's three. That's three. three. Ooh, something off-field, like a Mazda, an original Mazda MX-5, maybe. Fun. Fun car, yeah. for sure. Um, and what would the fifth be? Oof. Um, well, I, I, I don't have anything special as an everyday car. I have high-mileage, ordinary cars. Mm just a way of getting from A to B. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I don't know what the fifth car would be. Probably something boring like a Mercus Date or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Something yeah. Gets the job done. Exactly. And then you drive your other cars when you Exactly. Wanna have something fun. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you for uh, coming over. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. 
Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.